Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we interview scholars, policymakers, and business executives about some of the most urgent issues and frontier ideas in our world today. I'm Princeton Junior Tiger Gao. Today, we continue our coverage on the COVID-19 crisis. And as many of our fans uh, and listeners know, uh, sports fans are having a tough time these days because a lot of the sports events and, and mass entertainments have all shut down uh, due to the concern for social distancing. Uh, and, and today, we're very happy to uh, invite back one of our a uh, longtime friend and longtime supporter of the show. And, and, and this is the second time he's back as, as the SVP of uh, data, data Analytics and Insights at the NFL, Ewell Fusillo. Mr. Fusillo is uh, alumni at Princeton, has been very supportive to, to Arjun and I. And, and uh, we had a conversation just a couple months ago about NFL's data-driven decisions and how uh, NFL generally does uh, its data operations, it, both in terms of uh, surveying fans and also uh, creating new opportunities for, for players to recover and, and do better in their games. And it was a fascinating conversation. And given all the turmoil going on these days, uh, we thought we, we would do another episode again, just asking how NFL is doing, what the sports industry is really thinking about ahead. Uh, so thanks so much for, for joining us back again, Mr. Fusillo. Well, thanks uh, so much, Tiger and Arjun, for, uh, for having me. I had such a great time uh, during our last meeting. Um, this one's a little different. Uh, for those of you listening to the podcast, we are on a, a Zoom recording. Uh, so this is the new norm, and I like, I like it a lot. Uh, it's, uh, it's terrific. But really, th thank you so much for, uh, for having me back. And, and quite frankly, thank you so much for the overall uh, policy punchline program. I, I do think you bring terrific, terrific content. Uh, to, to all of your listeners. So really love being a part of it. Well, we were thinking maybe we could be acquired by NFL sometimes, you know, as, as a side <laughs> content production company you guys have. I, I don't know, you know? So, uh, uh, and, and also my co-host Arjun, just a quick word on Arjun. Our listeners must be very familiar with Arjun at, at, at this point. Arjun Mani, he is a rising senior just like me, studying computer science and does computer vision research at Princeton. A brilliant guy, uh, one of my best friends and also the, the president of Princeton Data Science Society. So thanks so much for, for joining me again today, Arjun. Yeah, happy to be here as always, Tiger. Uh, well, Mr. Fasilla, we kind of touched on this. I mean, the sports industry is really, uh, I, I think losing a lot of money is even an understatement. I think this uncertainty regarding what the plan ahead is, is, is truly what's uh, gripping here. I mean, the, the sports industry is going to lose around $61 billion in revenue in 2020, according to some projection that I read. And uh, it's said that, you know, the Major League Baseball is losing around $4 billion this year. Considered that they made like $10 billion last year, that, that means they're around losing around $70 million a day. And that's just crazy statistics that the, uh, we can keep going on. Uh, would you mind just telling us a little bit about what's going on at the NFL right now? I know you guys are off season. So uh, what's the plan ahead? Yeah, well, that's a, it's, it's a, great, uh, a great perspective. Um, uh, Tiger, I, I do think you see a number of things in, in the media uh, about sports and entertainment more, more broadly. Uh, we have one uh, very lucky uh, timing advantage here, and, and that is uh, really, as you said, we, we are in the off season. Uh, now, typically, uh, and, and my experience is two seasons long, uh, as, as, uh, as you know from our last podcast, I, I spent about 20 years at American Express before joining the NFL a couple seasons ago. And my observation is uh, that in fact, the, the off season 
is is almost a busier time in many ways than the season itself. Once we get into the season, and as you know, we've said this publicly, uh, we are pl- planning to play uh, play out the full season in the fall. The advantage, uh, the timing advantage that we have, I'm stating the obvious here, is it's the fall, uh, right? Our season did not get interrupted. Um, we are in uh, fairly regular planning mode uh, right now, and we get the added advantage uh, of watching our colleague leagues uh, pull together their events. Um, we were uh, talking right before the podcast. I, I was super impressed with NASCAR's uh, implementation. Um, you know, they had really done a terrific job of showing uh, their fans uh, o- over uh, over the broadcast uh, the social distancing protocols that uh, the broadcasters were were using uh, to actually bring that event to uh, uh, to the audiences ar- around the country and around the world. Um, so, you know, lots more to come. You know, we've seen a number of charity golf events all, you know, very, very well done. Uh, so, you know, we're looking forward to, uh, to MLB. We're looking forward to seeing NBA, NHL uh, also announced, Formula One uh, also announced. So, uh, you know, I think those are all, those are all good, uh, good things. Uh, and certainly during the course of this podcast, I'd be happy to talk about uh, the types of data uh, that we're using uh, to understand the fans' mindset and what they're looking for for this upcoming season. So why don't we just dive right in? Uh, we, we know that a lot sure. of sports leagues have come back. Uh, some are planning on coming back, such as uh, MLB, NBA, NHL, and, and NFL is sort of preparing their season for the fall. What are fans saying about this comeback? Do they uh, want to start watching games live again? Is there concern about live events? Uh, what's the sentiment here? Yeah, yeah so the data best practice uh, is to keep a constant pulse on your customers. Uh, we do that in a couple of ways. One, we have our own proprietary research. We call it the NFL Fan Tracker. Uh, and it's a rotating group of fans who we survey literally on a daily basis. And of course, during these unprecedented times, uh, we are surveying them around, uh, number one, their appetite for live sports to begin with. I'm stating the obvious. There is a uh, an increasing uh, need, right, for live sports. Uh, and and uh, and that's great. The, the, uh, the demand is there. Um, attendance is also a piece that we look at and what are the things that fans would be looking for. We also do what, what's known in the industry as syndicated research. And that's where we will hire a third party to in fact survey the general US population with similar questions. So we get both a fan-centric view and a general population view. So here are some surprising statistics. And, and by the way, our partner, our go-to partner for the syndicated research is a company called Nielsen. Many of you will know Nielsen as the TV company. They are the it when it comes to measuring TV audiences. Uh, And so we can certainly talk about that uh, a little bit more later in the podcast. Uh, But for consumer survey work, one of the things they found on on a survey that uh, they just finished on May 20th uh, is that 8% of the general public would be ready to attend a live sporting event tomorrow. Tomorrow, literally tomorrow. And, and so that's significant. 8% of 300 million people is a lot of people who'd be ready to go tomorrow. 21% would be ready to go in 30 to 60 days. And nearly 50% would be ready 
uh, in three to four months, obviously in time for uh, for our season. So, and by the way, every time we have Nielsen go out and do that measurement, which is typically weekly, all of those numbers rise, right? And so if we were to have asked those questions uh, 94 days ago, and why is 94 days significant? Well, that was the start of COVID-19. Um, the answer would have been 0% probably across the board because nobody, nobody really knew what was happening. States were shutting down uh, and there was a general just lack of knowledge uh, around what was happening. So our uh, counsel to any, by the way, this is true, not just of uh, the sports business, but any company, a restaurant company, a movie uh, house, uh, a hoteling company, an airline, uh, and I'm sure many of them are doing this, uh, should be surveying their fans and their customers constantly to really understand what is that sentiment. Now, our very own fan tracker also gives us insight very specifically uh, to us in terms of what are fans expecting when they go back uh, to live games. Are they expecting... Uh, PPE? Are they expecting masks, uh, et cetera? Are they expecting social distancing, right? Are they expecting uh, cleaning services, you know, incremental disinfecting and cleaning services? Uh, and the answer is yes, of course, to all three. But more importantly, we're able to measure it very specifically. What percentage of our fans are saying they need to see that when they go back into the stadium, right? And again, every time we measure, we are in uh, our seventh wave um, right, over 94 days, we've done seven waves of consumer research because we're very, very serious about this. Uh, in every wave, the sentiment um, increases, right, for uh, coming back uh, into the live, uh, the live game. Uh, and of course, uh, as, as weeks pass on by at, with stay-at-home orders, the appetite for live sports on TV rises and it rises exponentially, as, as, as you'd expect. I think there are two interesting points I want to quickly go through. The first thing is, I suppose the, your measurement of uh, fans' uh, sentiment for for whether they want to go to live events, that could also be a proxy for just how people feel about, you know, going back to normal life, right? I mean, I, I suppose sporting events is yes. the, really the epitome of what normal life would be about. I mean, I, for, for me, it seems... Uh, very intuitive. If, if you go to a restaurant, you can, you know, place the tables apart or in Hong Kong, you know, they put uh, shields in between tables. But for sports yeah. events, you really can't do that, right? So uh, if people really feel like they can go in three months, they, they really want to go, I, I suppose. Uh, do, do you, do, what do you think is really driving that? Uh, do you think it's, it's because people generally uh, miss sports or do you think they're confident that the, the curve will be flattened in three months? Uh, what do you think? Uh, it's actually irrational. They, they just, it's, it's not actually based on anything. They just feel like they really want to go now. Uh, you, you know, I was just listening to a, uh, a Zoom uh, call by um, uh, some folks at Carlisle. Uh, and so Carlisle had an, a, an extensive set of portfolio companies. Uh, and this gentleman at Carlisle was uh, actually saying the same thing that you were, which is, there are hard metrics, and of course, uh, all companies, and unless uh, they have their head in the sand, uh, they are measuring uh, all of the metrics. They're looking state by state at cases, at test positivity, at mortality rates, uh, et cetera. Uh, but the reality is that there is an emotional uh, component, that there is a confidence component. Uh, and what the Carlisle person pointed to was China. Uh, and while China, uh, you know, has come back very significantly, right, in terms of its V-shape 
uh, return, you know, from an economy perspective. Uh, some of that, as Carlisle Person was saying, you know, could have been driven from an emotional perspective, meaning it really depends on the people uh, as to how fast after a restaurant opens, they will actually go back and dine at that restaurant, right? That, that's an emotional um, uh, decision. And, you know, I think the more that we can outwardly communicate, uh, and it's not just sports companies, right? It's, uh, sport, it's sports and entertainment, it's hospitality, right? The airlines and the hotels. Uh, the more that they can outwardly communicate through whatever channels they use, right? Uh, you know, we, we uh, of course, have a, a very leading position in TV, uh, but also social, that here are the protocols, here are the things, we've listened to you, and you have said that um, you would like to see these types of uh, things when you come back to our establishment. Um, that, to me, takes, uh, it's just personal opinion, I have no data uh, to suggest this, but it was interesting to hear the Carlisle analysis, where they literally compared uh, China to California, uh, uh, and 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 what they said is the speed with which people uh, are going back into retail establishments or going back to uh, restaurants um, seems to be driven by that comfort level of uh, you know am I comfortable going back or not, and that's where you, you just it, it's just good business practice to listen to your customers, and that's what we do as uh, as as the NFL and our our colleagues at the NBA and, and uh, MLB, NHL, NASCAR, uh, we're in the business of listening to our fans. So I, look, I, I'd, be, I'd be shocked if, uh, if, if any, any of the leagues did not do a good job of, of building and instilling that confidence through outward communications to their customers. Absolutely. And I, I actually remember reading an, an article a few weeks back about how for a lot of sports fans, the lack of sports almost feels like a, like a loss, sort of a, a psychological feeling of loss with, with sports not there. So it, it totally makes sense. Um, that said, so, so based on what you're, you're hearing from fans, what, what do you think um, it's going to look like when, when games start in the fall? Like what, what, is, what are the protocols going to be? How is the game going to look like? Just want to hear what you think, uh, how things might change, even if, as you're bringing fans back live. You know, not not sure. I think a lot of that, uh, as we talked about, uh, is we'll observe our colleague uh, leagues. We'll see what they're what they're doing. Uh, again, we have high confidence in our uh, colleague leagues that they'll do uh, terrific uh, terrific things. You know, as we've said, you know, we're 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 planning um, to work with the local uh, authorities and just make sure we're. Uh, meeting all the guidelines, the governmental guidelines, um, and, you know, building the right protocols. Uh, again, for us, um, it's the fall. That's a very, very long time from now. It, it's more time between now and the fall than we've been in this pandemic, right? Just, I mean, as crazy as that sounds, <laughs> um, but, you know, this pandemic, is it's only been 90 days, um, you know, and uh, we have well more than 90 before we start. So, uh, we're going to watch and see, um, but you know, again, the the NFL and all of the other leagues, I'm sure they'll they'll do the right thing. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, so why don't we dive into data analytics, um, how that looks like both during this crisis and beyond? Um, so there was there were findings from a, a special COVID nineteen uh, business and uh, intelligence analytics report um, that was recently released that indicated that fifty percent of the <laughs> 500 U.S. companies surveyed are using data analytics more 
because of the COVID crisis. Um, and so this t- the takeaway there is that uh, professionals in the field are, are saying that they're reporting an increase in analytics use, new opportunities across all departments. So it's quite clear that data analytics um, is continuing to be a stable feature of decision making. And in many ways, the COVID crisis is only accelerating this trend. Um, so just to kind of start off very generally, why is data analytics important? What do companies stand to lose by not incorporating data into their decision making in a fundamental way? Uh, great, uh, great backdrop, great question, uh, Arjun. So I uh, hearken back to the discussion we were just having uh, before the podcast. Uh, so my daughter is uh, almost 17. She's turning 17. She'll be applying to, to schools in, uh, in the fall. Uh, one benefit uh, of having gone to Princeton is that uh, if you have a child that's applying, <laughs> they will set up a very, very nice full day experience for your child. So, uh, yeah, <laughs> Something right Arjun and I did not get to day. enjoy. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, You guys didn't get to enjoy. I will tell you, it's an, it's an amazing experience, uh, including for the parent. Uh, and one of the really uh, amazing parts about that, uh, that full day, it was a full day visit, uh, so it was amazing, um, was we, we were able to attend uh, a couple of classes. One of the classes was uh, Political Science 301. And uh, I was taught by uh, Professor uh, Tatunek, ter- terrific, just a very, very engaging class. The thing that struck me is I'm sitting in a political science class with my then 16-year-old daughter, and the entire class is being ta- ta- taught to code in R. Uh, and, but it's political science. <laughs> you know, it's not data science, it's political science. And uh, so I was talking to uh, uh, Professor Tadunek afterwards, and what she said to me is, I felt it was my obligation to make sure that every Princeton student that graduates knows how to code in R, Python, et cetera, and knows data and analytics. Because every business you can think of, healthcare, banking, consulting, sports and entertainment, like we're talking today, hospitality, uh, all run on data and analytics. Uh, And so, you know, one of the clear manifestations of this, just to give you a sense of it, is uh, Sam Palmasano, who you may know is the former CEO of uh, IBM, uh, and Ken Chenault, who's the former CEO of American Express, Uh, have pulled together what they're calling a data consortium. Uh, They feel the same way um, that uh, Professor Tatunek believes, which is data is the future in any industry uh, that you have for for great decision-making. And and so their premise is to bring together companies like the NFL, like Facebook, like Nike, uh, MasterCard, Visa, American Express, IBM, you know, name, name your company, who do data and data decisioning well to get playbooks out there uh, more broadly, right? Everybody wins. This is not a competitive arena where we only want the best companies to use data and analytics for good decisioning, right? Whether it's for sales support, operations, finance, uh, or employee safety, you know, could run the whole gamut. All of those things should be data uh, driven decisioning. Um, But the reality is, not everybody knows how to do it well. It's not obvious. Uh, in, in fact, we talked about this in our last podcast. Because big data tools exist, because data storage has become so cheap, because computing power 
uh, is now universally available, even to the smallest of small businesses, the temptation is to use data and data-driven decisioning for everything that you do. Uh, and that's not a good thing, because if you try to do it for everything, you will do it for nothing. You will not get anything done. You know, my advice in, in uh, any company embarking on a data journey is be very targeted. Pick at most three applications uh, to drive your data-driven decisioning. Get those quick wins. Establish that there is a clear return on investment for uh, infrastructure uh, in, in data and analytics and talent. Talent origin like yourself, right? Like, you know, it's uh, not to... Uh, not, not to ma uh, manage your expectations incorrectly, but data scientists are more in demand now than they have ever been. I was actually too early entering the field of data science. Okay, those entering, <laughs> now, <laughs> those entering now will have fabulous, fabulous careers. Um, you know, the tools in many ways didn't exist when I, when I entered the field 20 years ago. Now the tools are there but we need to find the right applications and the highest return uh, investments to make. That's really the challenge. Uh, so hopefully that helps, Arjun. I know that was a long, uh, long question, long uh, answer to your question, but it's it's important to to really establish that. <laughs> no, absolutely, absolutely. It's it's. I mean, it's so interesting, especially now with the with how much data exists and and the kind of tools that we have to to analyze it. Mm. There's there's just an amazing opportunity. Um, so and it's, it's, why, it's why I'm going to be unemployed uh, because I don't, I, don't, I don't study computer science and data science. It's just, <laughs> thanks for helping out, guys. Really, yeah. really appreciate that. Really made my day today. We're, we're going to take over the world, Tiger. <laughs> uh, but, uh, and, and so it, it seems like crises such as the one that we're facing now, in, in, in a way, it, it, it seems to be accelerating what this report is saying is that it, it's accelerating the shift uh, towards data-driven approaches. And so, um, I think we'll probably kind of dive deep into this next question, but to get an overview, yeah. um, how important are data-driven approaches and what role do they play in a crisis situation like the pandemic that we're facing mm -hmm. right now? Um, and we'd love to hear you know, yeah. how the NFL is in, in some ways responding in a data-driven way to, to this crisis. Sure, sure. Well, my, my uh, number one leadership principle, and I think many leaders uh, follow the same uh, type of principle, is make sure you learn from every, every crisis that you manage through. Uh, so for the two of you, for many of your listeners on, on the podcast, uh, you're at the front end of your career. Most careers are 30 to 40 years. Uh, and remember that I'm the one who told you this. Over the course of your career, you will have to lead through three global crises. That, that is just the reality. There will be three global crises that you will manage through over the course of your career. Why? Because they happen every 10 years, almost like clockwork. Uh, so for me, my uh, first crisis was 9-11, 2001. My second was the financial crisis in 2008. And here we are almost, uh, you know, exactly 10 years later, 2020, it's 12 years, that's fine. Uh, and, and here we are in the current pandemic. And the best leaders learn from uh, each of their crises, right? Because you, you learn something new. In 9-11 and the financial crisis, I was at American Express during both, both of those, um, using data to establish a single source of truth for decision-making that has to happen quickly 
expediently and on point is probably one of the most critical things that uh, that you can do. So at the NFL, we, we uh, stood up two very important processes, uh, both again modeled after my American Express experience. One, one of the things that happened uh, back in 2001 after 9-11 was uh, as we looked at our global merchant portfolio, uh, we had a number of merchants that, uh, uh, you know, faced financial difficulty. You know, they had difficulty paying us, uh, et cetera. And uh, yet at the time, we did not have a credit risk assessment capability, uh, which at the time would have had to analyze millions, 8 million to be exact, uh, merchants in real time to understand, well, who's a credit risk and who isn't, right? You need that. That's basic knowledge to manage through any glo uh, global economic crisis. Well, when I came to the NFL, we didn't have 8 million, but we had several thousand uh, corporate partners. They might be sponsors, product partners, uh, media partners. And since I had the experience from American, uh, American Express, in a matter of days, we stood up a credit risk assessment capability so that we could analyze in real time uh, the several thousand partners. Uh, and that was a great, you know, that was a great, again, single source of truth. We don't want opinion entering into, hey, listen, do you have credit risk with that partner or not? You have to make very objective. Sometimes, you know, we don't like it, but they're hard decisions. We have to make, you know, hard data-driven decisions. The second example I would give you, uh, and we can dive a lot more into this uh, later in the podcast, is the recovery. Right. There is an economic recovery. We are all hoping for a V-shaped recovery. Uh, I, for one, am betting on a V-shaped recovery. I'm not an economist, but what I would say is the financial crisis, there was something fundamentally wrong with the economy. Right? We had banks that were undercapitalized. The most important sector in the economy had an issue with it. Uh, and so, you know, it's not surprising that the recovery from the financial crisis took three years. Um, I wouldn't expect this economic recovery to take three years. I, I would hope for, for it to be, I don't know, half of that. Um, but you still need to know uh, from a data-driven approach, where is the recovery happening? So what we have done uh, is we have looked to publicly available data sources like Google Trends. We have looked to the syndicated research that we talked about. Uh, at Nielsen. There's another source I didn't talk about, but uh, I would recommend to all of your listeners, YouGov. YouGov provides for all of the brands, the major brands around the world, actually, what is the brand sentiment? And you can measure it every day. And what's important about that is it gives you a leading indicator as to where consumer sentiment is. Are they ready to spend uh, in your establishment? to buy your services, to buy your products. That to me is really the, the, the key, and that's the data-driven uh, approach that we took at American Express post the financial crisis. I learned from that, I brought that to the NFL, and again, in a matter of days, right, we stood up uh, that early, um, uh, early detection for consumer sentiment and a consumer willingness to re-engage. Uh, with uh, less with us, but with more uh, our uh, pro uh, partners uh, and our products. So more to come, but those would be the two examples I would give to your listeners. No, that's that's super illuminating, um, and it's 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 interesting because you've also written about the importance of scenario planning and of stress testing during times of crisis, right? So 
you know, in times like yeah. this, and I, and I imagine in, it would have been a similar situation in the financial crisis, the situation is just so uncertain. The facts, the trends, everything seems to change yeah. weekly. Um, and so, you know, during this time, how is the NFL navigating decision-making and planning? And more generally, how do you navigate decision-making and planning and use data to help you when there's so much uncertainty about what's going on? One of the, uh, maybe it's the only benefit of COVID-19. It may be. It, <laughs> it's, hard, it's hard to say that there's any uh, uh, benefits to a global pandemic. But uh, as a data person, here, here's what I would say. Um, the pandemic, this pandemic, not, uh, for example, the H1N1 swine flu from, from 2009, this pandemic led the world of data professionals to crowdsource, to crowdsource the uh, the best and most real-time data on COVID-19 cases, testing, and mortalities, right? And even more granular data, but, you know, those being probably the three most important metrics. Uh, if you were to go back, and you could do it, right, right, right after listening to this podcast, if you were to go back and try to find, for example, county-level uh, infections, cases for H1N1, you can't find it. You can't find it. Right, which is crazy to me, because why wouldn't the world's data uh, scientists and the world's me medical scientists have access to that data set? Probably would have been useful for this pandemic, so it's a shame it wasn't available. That is not the case in this pandemic. There, there's uh, uh, coronadatascraper.com. I'm not sure if you've ever uh, gone to that, but that's probably the best crowdsourced uh, data source for uh, uh, you know, COVID cases and COVID mortality data. Uh, there's incredible um, data around uh, socioeconomic status by, uh, by county. And so you can do all kinds of very, very interesting analyses. But, and here's the big button, that's why data professionals are so critical. Uh, and I don't mean to be critical of the media, but the media tend to confuse uh, decision makers and businesses, and the media tends to confuse the general public. If you were to ask uh, a non-data professional any statistic uh, around COVID, what are the number of cases globally today? You know, how many people have been tested? What is the test positivity rate in New Jersey? Nobody, no non-data professional can answer that question. That is a terrible weakness to any company. Every company that operates in, in, uh, in the U.S., every company that operates globally needs to know with absolute precision, what the case volumes are and what the test positivity rates are in every region around the world in which they operate, right? And when they don't know that, they're operating blind. It's crazy that they would operate that way, right? And then on top of that, of course, there's the consumer research that we talked about. What do your fans, what do your customers think, right? But if you don't have a basic fact base, uh, that is a big problem. So to me, the big transformation uh, that happened and the big thing that we did as a data and analytics team is to create uh, what we're calling a senior management dashboard, uh, which tracks on a weekly basis all of these types of metrics uh, and many more. How many people are watching TV during the crisis every week? What are they watching? Uh, you know, it, uh, is it different by demographic? Is, is the Gen Z consumption uh, of TV versus digital different? Uh, from the age 55 plus, is female different from male? Are different ethnic groups different? You got to have these fact bases in front of you if you're going to scenario plan 
uh, and to and to understand how to help in your own company's recovery. And then because I work for the NFL, um, you know, I feel very strongly about this. The NFL and all of our uh, colleague sports leagues will help in the nation's recovery. Arjun, you talked about it. You know, Tiger, you talked about it. Uh, the emotional connection that people around the world have with sports is very, very strong. It's probably stronger than anything else you can think of, right? You know, beyond closeness to your family, I can't think of anything else that brings nations uh, and brings the globe together. Uh, so it is not an option, <laughs> right, to have a disparate set of facts when you're trying to plan for what in effect can help the global uh, economic recovery. I, I know that sounds very grand, but we feel very passionate about that. Uh, at the NFL, we, we really, really feel uh, that we're here to help in the nation's recovery, and we're going to do it. We have 100% confidence we're going to do it. Absolutely. And so to try to understand it, so you're saying that you're identifying, okay, well, these are important numbers and metrics that we need everybody in the company to know, regardless of whether they're a data professional or not. And you're saying we're going right. to have this dashboard that goes everywhere that everybody from the top NFL executives to everybody in the company can see and use that to, to both speak um, outwardly as well as to make decisions internally. That's right. And at the NFL, we go one step further. Uh, which is every Thursday morning at 11 o'clock, I go through that dashboard live on a Zoom with uh, every senior vice president at the NFL and above, uh, because it is that important that everybody operates with the same fact base. Uh, and by the way, by going through that fact base, it also uh, adds the cross-functional discussions that, um, you know, again, we're in this odd environment of working remotely. We don't bump into each other in the hallways anymore, right? That it's a proxy for forcing uh, people to bump into each other, right? They're on a Zoom, it's a virtual bump, but that's okay. Uh, if we lose that connectivity, we, we can miss some very important opportunities, right? We can miss important opportunities to be uh, connected with our fans. We miss important opportunities to help uh, our partners, our sponsors, our media partners, our product partners. Um, all of those things we use, uh, again, we call it the senior management dashboard. Uh, so my senior management dashboard, we use that as a, way, as a linking mechanism to bring that uh, cohesiveness that I would say most companies uh, lost a little bit of as we moved into a remote environment. Well, maybe next time Arjun and I could hop on the Zoom call for the senior uh, executives for NFL. We'll get some data, you know. But, uh, well, <laughs> you know, one thing that I've struggled the most with in this uh, crisis is to find accurate data. I mean, you kind of touched on how uh, you would both yeah. crowdsource uh, data just in case a lot of people don't know uh, granular level data, but also have uh, to make sure they're also facts. Uh, and I think a big debate these days, uh, whether it's moral ethical debates or whether it's about the economic uh, recovery, they all rely on data, but people don't agree on the facts, right? Some people say, oh, no, no, the fatality rate is actually uh, 2%. Or some people say, no, no, it's actually only 0.2% if you take another angle. So no matter it's economic cost uh, or it's the actual fatality rate or false positive rates, uh, and, and you know, it, it's just so complicated. It seems that it's so hard that for people to actually agree on something. And also you uh, alluded to the fact that, you know, for non-data professionals, 
uh, they're confused by media, right? Because a uh, media also sometimes don't understand, uh, you, you know, there's conditional probability, there's, you know, absence of evidence versus evidence of absence. And, and probability, as, as we know, is not just a 2% or 3%. There are actually a lot of assumptions uh, that go behind them. So I don't know, I, 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 would you, how, how do you actually collect, you, you think the best set of facts yeah. uh, that, that you're comfortable with? What if your set of facts disagree with your colleagues at uh, NHL or uh, you know NBA? Uh, how do you deal with those disagreements? That's, that's a great point. And, and Tiger, do, do you mean around the COVID uh, data or do you mean more generally uh, in uh, terms uh, of the data? Both could work. I mean, probably uh, when we talk about COVID, it's probably more pertinent, but also just long-term wise, how do you get those data? Yeah. Yeah. So look, I, I would say in the land of COVID, and, and this is where having uh, a team like mine, and I'm, I'm sure uh, many, many of our colleague leagues and other industries, uh, because I know many of them, uh, have similar chief data officers in charge. Um, you always want to have the chief data officer in charge of that single source of truth. To your point, not some 20 years from now, this will not be the case, but today it's typically only a data professional like myself or the equivalents of myself at uh, Facebook, MasterCard, uh, you know, um, uh, Nike, et cetera, who can interrogate the data and realize there are weaknesses and then either don't show that data or disclose there are weaknesses in the data, right? So one, uh, you know, very important uh, fact, right, that we've uncovered, we don't have a solution for it, uh, we meaning the, the nation, uh, is that mortality rates are typically uh, understated. Why? Uh, because the coroner's offices were deprioritized from uh, testing resources, right? So they don't know that someone who died from something respiratory died from COVID-19. So that is an inherent weakness in the data set. Now, increasingly what we are seeing is that some states are uh, reporting a new um, add-on data set, which is probable COVID deaths, right? But as long as you're disclosing to your organization that we believe the data that we have here uh, from, I'll make it up, Johns Hopkins is certain COVID deaths only, and that may only be half of the picture, then everybody knows, okay, I got it. There's another whatever, you know, 20%, 30%, 50%, maybe even 100% add-on that will come later when EWAL finds, you know, my, my chief data officer finds the probable death uh, data set and adds that, uh, adds that on. So as long as you have a chief data officer in charge interrogating the data and putting the right caveats on the data set, the right decisions can be made. The disaster is a non-data professional looks at CNN, and I'm not picking on CNN, I, I think they do a reasonably good job, but uh, they're not data professionals. They're, they're clearly not data professionals. Uh, some of their data visualizations, it makes me cringe, you know, the map with 50 colors on it. Did anybody ever teach you the first rule in data visualization? More colors means you don't know what you're doing on data visual. If, if you have to use colors, okay, that means you, you not have a good handle on data visualizations, right? You should not have to use different colors to, to get your point across. Um, 
so, you know, they're, they're not data professionals. Um, if, if you have folks, again, not to pick on CNN or the media, but if you have uh, non-data professionals, let's say in your, in your media team, trying to sift through very complex, very new data sets, uh, you could be operating with a, a, a false set of facts or a misstated set of facts. Oh, things are good and things are actually bad. You know, we have seen, not, not to you know, get political about this, but some local governors, uh, you know, you, you question the data that they've been putting uh, on, on their websites because, you know, is it, is, is it a skewed, intentionally skewed set of uh, uh, truths, right? Did you intentionally remove the probable deaths because it didn't tell such a good story? Uh, did you intentionally remove, you know, nursing home data from the entire data set because it didn't tell such a good story? Um, you know, that, that's where you just, you get, you get nervous, right? A data professional will never do that. A data professional will always say, look, uh, here are three different ways to look at the, at the data. Certain deaths, you add the probable, you have a nursing home data set, and here, you know, here's what you have. And by the way, all three uh, give you three different stories, three different perspectives, and you should use all three. Uh, you know, as a practical matter in making your decisions. Um, more generally, though, Tiger, if, if I, uh, because we, we are not trading notes on the COVID data with the other sports leagues. There's just simply not enough time, right? It's only been 94 days, and, you know, we're all operating um, at, uh, at mock speed here. Again, our off-season is a uh, very, very busy time for us. Uh, but I do trade notes uh, very significantly with the other leagues. Um, uh, I know most of the data professionals at, uh, uh, at the NBA, the MLB, uh, the USTA, uh, NASCAR. Uh, and so we do, tra we do trade notes uh, pr pretty extensively, both on data sets themselves, uh, as well as data infrastructure. You know, what are the, the best practices uh, out there? Uh, lots more to do. But, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to do a little bit more. Again, going back to the data consortium, uh, the Sam Palmasano and the Ken Chenault initiative, we're trying to get uh, even more broadly out there, right, that we go across industries. So just to, to touch on that last point, I, I find that really interesting and a really sort of refreshing approach because on the one hand, it, it seems that the one sports industry that incorporates data the most effectively to engage fans and drive up engagement will benefit potentially at the cost of other sports. Um, and with the NFL appearing to be, you know, in many ways, a leader in, in data analytics and in, in across the sports industry, you are in particular advocating for the importance of collaboration, for sharing notes, for sharing insights with other sports leagues, the MLB, NBA, MLS, et cetera. Um, why is it that you see collaboration as so important um, when it comes to data-driven approaches as opposed to competition or, or, or sort of the, the natural instinct to gain an edge over your, over your competitors? Uh, we are all competitive. Uh, you're 100% you're, you're right, uh, Arjun. Uh, but the hard facts are, uh, if you look at an average avid sports fan, that fan is a fan of three, generally three or more sports. And so there is a rising tide effect for all of the leagues to get to some minimum level of data competence. And, you know, I appreciate your thoughts that, uh, you know, the NFL is, is, is likely uh, on the high end of sophistication. Um, much of that is simply because we took what was perfected in the financial services industry 
who was very advanced, right? The financial services industry and the healthcare industry were the first industries to use data and analytics at scale to drive their businesses. And so we simply took uh, an operating model, which quite frankly took seven years to build at American Express and built it in 18 months at the NFL. So it's not like there's some magic. It's we had the blueprint and we made no mistakes. There, you know, I made lots of mistakes in my American Express days. Um, we knew the blueprint. We knew the game plan. We had seen the movie before. Uh, and, and so it was a very, very fast implementation. The second thing that made for an 18-month versus uh, seven-year journey is infrastructure. Right, 20 years ago, when I built the data and analytic practice at, at American Express, you had to spend nearly a billion dollars in compute infrastructure to store the types of data uh, that you need to have the compute power that you need. Today, you can just call, we, we use AWS, uh, you can just call AWS and get the infrastructure stood up tomorrow, right, at a cost in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, not hundreds of millions. And so that's where you can just move with great speed. So to me, to be able to share that journey, uh, not only with our leagues, uh, uh, you know, our colleague leagues you know, here in the U.S., uh, I've, I've spoken extensively uh, in Europe uh, to the European soccer teams, as an example. Each team is a small business. And again, 20 years ago, when I st stood up the data practice at American Express, it would have been impossible for a small business to use data and analytics at all. You just couldn't do it. You know, a, uh, the infrastructure, and B, you, could, you, could, you wouldn't be able to pay the talent uh, to come in there. It's, it's very expensive talent to, to get in there. They wouldn't do it. Um, today, for a few hundred thousand dollars, call AWS. You can, you can stand up your CRM tomorrow. Uh, and don't hire anybody full-time. There are companies out there that will rent you data scientists by the project. Rent what you need and then get going. Now, you may decide, I highly recommend, <laughs> that you uh, build up your own data science department, um, but you don't need to do that out of the gate, right? And so you you're out of this land of a cold start problem. Uh, there is no such thing as a cold start, right? You can, start, you can, you can, uh, you can walk, then jog, then run. Uh, and, and years ago, you could not do that. You had to go right to mock speed. Uh, and unless you are American Express, ready to spend... Uh, a half a billion dollars, you can do it. You're out of the game. Um, so that's how I think about it. <laughs> well, well, my takeaway is just that NFL made such a great decision hiring you. I mean, that must be like the best, you know, <laughs> snatch you right from uh, American Express and, uh, and, and help them build the whole thing, you know. Well, uh, Arjun joined our policy punchline team a while ago, and he hasn't given me any insight for, uh, on data or, or any of our computer vision research, dude, you know. <laughs> Thank, thanks for helping out here. Anyways, well, uh, I, I, I think that we kind of touched on um, all the aspects about, you know, where we get the data, how we process data, what the tools we're using. Uh, and I think another really interesting aspect of this current crisis is that fans are all staying home, right? Uh, so you, you don't get the stadium yes. data, not the in-person data anymore. And, and it seems more important to engage fans on social media, especially when uh, a huge issue right now is that people don't watch TV anymore because I, Wall Street Journal reported that, you know, a large cable and satellite TV companies are, are all losing like customers uh, in the first three months of the year just because all the sports bars are all canceling subscriptions. Uh, sorry about my mm. Mac, Mac 
background noise here. Uh, it's just all, all the sports bars are canceling subscriptions and, uh, and that causes a huge issue. So I suppose mm. everybody is moving on to social media. They're, they're streaming things. Uh, how do you actually get to know them on that front? This goes back to how the media and we have, you know, great respect for the Wall Street Journal and CNN and all those who uh, have reported those things. Uh, it's important to have the facts. Uh, so this is where I go back to our own data uh, from Nielsen. Again, Nielsen is the currency, uh, as the industry calls it. They own the currency for TV measurement. Uh, and so the Wall Street Journal is right in that there has been a secular decline in what Nielsen calls households using TV, HUTs, okay? Uh, and it's been a single-digit long-term uh, percentage decline. The NFL, however, has bucked that trend uh, virtually every year that they've been in existence, okay? And so for the past couple of seasons, as a, as a for instance, just to give you the stats, we've had two back-to-back -back years of 5% increases increases in viewership of our game. At the same time, there have been single digit decreases in households using TV. So for us, uh, the facts are very, very different. They're very different from any other programming, whether it's other sports leagues, the Grammys, <laughs> the Academy Awards, you know, all of those have been, uh, you know, admittedly on, on, on a tough, uh, tough track. Um, part of the appeal of the NFL, and, and I think you get this is, and we talked about this earlier, uh, is it's a, uh, a re relatively short season, right? It's a, it's a three-month season, uh, and it's live. You know, there's no record, you know, you can't record it and, and have, you know, the same uh, effect. It is a, uh, in effect, a perishable piece of uh, inventory for fans to view and for the networks to sell against when they're, um, you know, selling advertising time, you know, you've heard all the crazy statistics on, on Super Bowl ads and things like that. Um, you know, that, that's the dynamic. Um, that said, your point's a very good one, which is we, we, when we look at our next generation of fans and we look at millennials, which I would argue is probably not even next generation anymore, they're mainstream fans for us, uh, but Gen Z, my daughter, <clears throat> right, my daughter's turning uh, 17, so she's in the Gen Z. How do we think about Gen Z? Well, you know, let me, let me give you some statistics on the draft. I'm not, not sure if you were able to uh, to watch our virtual draft, but that was a just an amazing feat uh, performed by uh, our events group, right, where we went from a, uh, a live um, experience uh, that would rival many other sports leagues games, right, in terms of attendance and, and fanfare and things like that, uh, to a fully virtual event uh, filmed in uh, every corner of the U.S. that you could think of, coaches' homes, players' homes, the commissioner's basement, uh, you know, just an amazing uh, implementation. And this is where data really helps you because, again, we have that real-time data feed and i think you guys know this but the draft is over three days and so we know minute by minute from my partnership with nielsen uh how many people are watching the draft on tv okay and then we have our own data sources to know how many people are watching through various sources uh of social media right and who so who's on twitter we also know when uh 
the commissioner is announcing uh, various picks, right? Joe Burrows, right? So when exactly did that happen? How many people were watching on TV? And what did the Twitter feed look like, right? And so we were able to triangulate all those things. And lo and behold, for uh, my daughter's, uh, you know, Gen Z generation, we saw the largest increase ever, year-over-year increase ever in the Gen Z population for the draft. 71% increase in uh, TV viewership, not social media, TV. <laughs> uh, you know, TV, uh, you know, viewership up 71% for Gen Z. Are you cre- No one has been able to pull that off. That's all the data. To, by the way, the programming was excellent. And bringing, again, that, that personal touch of being in a coach's home, a head coach's home uh, or dining room, right? Be, being in a player's home with, with all of their family. Uh, you know, being in the, the commissioner's basement and seeing him watch, uh, seeing him eat M&Ms over the course of three days. Um, those are things that just brought that Gen Z uh, population to the TV. And then social obviously was through the roof. You know, social, if you look at the numbers, uh, so, well, let me, let me just give you some rough numbers on the three days of the draft. We had 70 million people over the three days, 70 million people over the three days watched the draft. It's not even a game. It's not a game. It's the draft. <laughs> no one's playing anything. There's 70 million people who have watched this thing. Okay. And it's a very high bar. That's not like a, a cumulative measurement. You know, you have to have actually watched more than like a, a nanosecond. Like you actually have to sit there and watch before we count you right in that 70 million. That's that. And by the, the way, how the does that compare to, how does that compare to, to previous years? Is that more than, than previous years? It, it, it's our most watched uh, draft ever, wow. which what? is just staggering. <laughs> We're in the middle of a pandemic. Uh, we had incredible executives like Peter O'Reilly, Michelle McKenna, who's our chief uh, technology officer, pulled this thing together in 30 days. In 30 days, they had a pivot from a live event to this uh, virtual event, and 70.1 million people watched this thing. Right. And, and, and it's, you know, it's just staggering when you, when you think about it. Uh, and a regular season game, it's not an apples to apples comparison, of course, but a regular season game uh, draws about 16 million, 16 to 17 million. So it just gives you a set, you know, it's a three day, it's a hard comparative three days versus a three hour, uh, you know, game, but uh, it just gives you a little bit of a dimension, um, you know, to, uh, to look at. So, that's how we like to think about it. Um, you know, you don't always see the Wall Street Journal or the CNN talk about these things, but that's where the fact base is important. Uh, you know, we look, we get it. We, we know that social is important. Let me give you another statistic. Um, play, so we have our clubs, uh, of course, with uh, many highly, highly engaging uh, players. And we have a senior executive, uh, Ian Trombetta, who uh, helps the players um, in uh, in their social media, right? They're posting videos and, and things like that. Um, we have had 146 million video views, right? From club content, not NFL content, but just different teams. We call them clubs, but different clubs uh, pulling together player content, right? And you know, if you if you look at the number of uh, followers of players. So this is a, a staggering statistic. So, you know, followers on uh, the various social platforms, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, you know, all those uh, platforms, um, 300 million, 
right? 300 million followers of the players. It's, it's just a, a staggering uh, number. Uh, and it's, it's actually six times that of uh, followers of the NFL. So there are more followers uh, of all the players than there are uh, of the NFL, uh, which makes sense, right? If you think about Gen Z, they're more likely to relate to uh, a player than the league. That, you know, that makes sense. There's a whole connection uh, to that person. There's a connection to uh, that person's uh, uh, health and wellness, to their philanthropy, uh, you know, all of the things that they're doing uh, as a person, you know, the 360 degree view. So it's a great thing. More to come, but uh, it already is accelerating. I, I think there's a philosophical questions to be asked is that why do Americans love the draft this much? Why do you watch the draft more than the actual games? Dude, what is going on? This is <laughs> what is going on. <laughs> like people love the that, draft. That just means that that uh, Mr. Priscilla is doing his job right. <laughs> That's what that means. Oh no, no, not, not, not at all. This this, this was uh, certainly something that was a phenomenon way way before uh, I, I joined the NFL. I look, I, I think part of it. This is just one person's opinion. I think part of it is that uh, it it is a relatively uh, short season. And there is that pent up demand for I, I want to get to the season and that excitement of the next generation of players and wanting to see that uh, live and wanting to see how, uh, you know, getting into the minds of each of the teams and their strategies as to how, uh, how, when, where and why they're picking uh, certain players. Um, you know, it's uh, it's fascinating it, and, and it's all emotional. It's uh, it, it's a wonderful thing. There, there, the data does play a part, but I, th I think much more of it is just the structure, the amazing structure of how the NFL um, structures the game, uh, the fans, and its engagement with fans. Absolutely. It, it does seem that this, this record viewership, though, d does raise some really interesting questions about how uh, the pandemic might, at least in the short term, accelerate uh, shifts to online and, 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 and changes in, in how data is being used. But we might also be seeing changes in the long term, right? Um, and so that, that I, I find to be a particularly interesting question. And, and you've written about the importance of building capabilities for the long term. Um, and in times of crisis, yeah. how uh, those can fuel developments and improvements in data capabilities, but those should be designed yeah. for long-term objectives, not just to solve the immediate problems that you're facing in the crisis. So in particular, how do you think that this pandemic will inspire new capabilities, redesign of processes, new technologies in the long term? Um, and do yeah. you think that this pandemic will create and perhaps accelerate changes in adoption and use of data? I do. I do. I, I see it again in this very short, uh, though it feels long, 94 days. Uh, I, do, I really do see uh, a massive acceleration. Uh, the, the trends I would point to uh, and the trends I would encourage all of my uh, chief data officer colleagues around the world in, in various companies is, uh, number one, uh, don't do what I did because I had no choice back in the early 2000s and build heavyweight, inflexible infrastructure, even if you're tempted to do that because there, there isn't the time. Um, the, the way of the future uh, it's what we've done here at the NFL uh, with AWS is find very lightweight, rentable, highly programmable infrastructure that you can, in an agile development fashion, morph 
as the marketplace changes. I, I think that's really what the pandemic taught us is that if you made investments in very inflexible, on-premise, heavyweight infrastructure, you were in trouble during this pandemic, right? It's only because the NFL was on the AWS cloud that we could pivot within days to deploy credit risk dashboards to all 32 teams for their thousands of partners, right? In a matter of days, there's no way you can do that with heavyweight uh, infrastructure where you have to hire some arcane programmer in some language you don't know to get things done, right? I mean, you've all heard about the stories of uh, the IRS system still being uh, programmed in COBOL and Pascal. By the way, that's what I learned, you know, I, I'm dating myself, but I graduated, uh, you know, Princeton in 1988. That's what I learned. You know, I learned to code in COBOL. That is, cr it's machine language. It's crazy. You know, why would anybody have that type of infrastructure these days? Well, the government does, sorry. But unless you're the government, <laughs> do not make those types of investments, whether it's Azure, whether it's Google, whether it's AW, go cloud, go lightweight, go programmable. That's really key. Second, prioritize, right? One of the things we learned in the pandemic is you have no time to do everything. You cannot do everything. One of the things I said to my team on day one, I remember the, the, the day uh, pretty distinctly, uh, day one of working remotely, uh, March 13th for us, um, was I said to every person on the team, take a look at your priorities, okay? And I guarantee you by the end of the week, 90% of the things you were working on pre-COVID, you will not be working on. You need to change your priorities. It's the one thing I did wrong after 9-11. I tried to stay with the same priorities. Uh, and that was a mistake. I realized, wait a second, the world has changed. Uh, and as important as Initiative XYZ uh, was pre-pandemic, it is now not important. Uh, that said, it will be important again in 2021. When we get to the other side of this thing, you should, you know, don't forget about it. It's important, but you know, you do have to pivot. Um, what I like about that, maybe there's that second thing that uh, that was a good thing about COVID-19, is that it has taught many of us that we must prioritize. And in my mind, if you are uh, in the midst of standing up a data program, do no more than three standups. Right, do no more than three standups because you gotta make sure that those three uh, work and that you have the time and the energy to pivot them if, they're, uh, if, if you need to do some agile development and develop something that's slightly different than what you conceived of in, in, the, in the beginning. Uh, the other piece, which won't be true 20 years from now, but is true right now, uh, is that most executives and most companies are not data professionals. So they are therefore very impatient about progress on data-driven projects. They assume that if I invest today, tomorrow, I will have a return on investment, right? Because that's how marketing works. Oh, well, I did a marketing campaign. I have a, a return tomorrow, and I need to measure that. That is not how investments in data and analytics work. And so you have to make sure, especially if you're in the early days of your data program, that if you have three initiatives, all three work and they all three drive a positive return. If not, you run the risk of having your entire data program not continue, and you can't take that risk. Again, 20 years from now, we'll be like marketing. We'll be much more like a mainstream function. You don't have to operate that way, but it is a very, very different operating model. 
uh, for data professionals today. Uh, but again, the pandemic, I think, taught us well in being able to focus on doing two to three things. Three is the max, you know, two to three things and do them well uh, and execute flawlessly. So actually, we would love to hear an example of uh, how the pandemic has maybe uh, one thing that has become extremely important and that you really prioritize, and then one thing that's fallen lower on the priority list as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, yeah. So uh, one we talked about a little earlier, uh, which was much to my surprise, again, I'm relatively new to the NFL. Uh, we did not have a central credit risk uh, management capability for the thousands of vendor relationships that we have. That to me is just a basic um, uh, capability that any business should have. So I, I, I was uh, quite surprised. Again, we stood it up in a matter of days. We continue to enhance it with agile development. That is a capability that will stand the test of time. That will be a full-time uh, capability that will enable us and drive millions and millions and millions of dollars uh, of reduced credit losses, no, no doubt, because that's, that's what it did at, at uh, American Express. Um, an example of an initiative that was probably the biggest initiative we were pushing for the 2020 season, and it is now a 2021 season initiative, uh, is uh, a best practice that companies like Delta, like Marriott, and others uh, have engaged uh, in, which is loyalty programs, right? If you think about airline rewards, if you think about hotel rewards, um, those are some of the biggest drivers of engagement and biggest drivers of data, um, data-driven fan experiences. So, you know, gone are the days of having to guess at what is important to a fan, right? I mean, we have great data. We have thousands and thousands of data points, and we use models to say we think Arjun is interested in this piece of merchandise. We think Tiger is interested in buying a ticket to this game, and we're reasonably good at it. Now, if you have a loyalty program where uh, points are being awarded and points are being burned uh, towards certain types of experiences, you don't have to guess anymore. That's direct data that says, yes, you know, we have, and by the way, there's a direct delivery mechanism for uh, engagements and experiences. That is an initiative that we were running hard to launch uh, for the 2020 season. Um, given the time and the energy that we dedicated to the credit analysis, we said, well, look, you know, uh, that's fine. We'll do it in 2021, right? So those are, they're hard decisions. They're hard decisions. We had, uh, you know, some really, really uh, engaged team members who are looking forward uh, to engaging fans in a very new and very different way. Uh, but that's okay, right? One, one year is not going to make a long difference in uh, our 101st uh, season, right? We've been around for 100 years. We've been doing this for 100 years. Yeah, okay, fine. It's, it's year 102 that we launched the, uh, the loyalty program. It's, it's all good. It's all okay. Interesting. Uh, just to change tax a little bit, um, you know, as we're, as we're seeing, you know, during this pandemic, we're seeing an unprecedented role for the government. Uh, and we're also seeing issues of data privacy coming up um, in the process, you know, especially with the rise of contact sure. tracing apps and the like. Um, and it's very possible that the uh, pandemic could change and, and perhaps even accelerate conversations around data privacy. Uh, so, so what is the NFL doing to sort of stay ahead of privacy regulations? Uh, you know, with this, with this kind of this wave of, of regulations that's coming, such as um, GDPR or, or um, uh, California's privacy regulations as well. 
Um, and, and, and kind of as, yeah. as a fan of the NFL myself, what can I ex expect <laughs> the NFL to do with my data? Uh, well, you know, the, the, uh, so I, I run a data privacy steering committee uh, for, uh, for the league, uh, you know, as the head of uh, the global head of uh, data and analytics and, and you know, really uh, running a chief data office, if you will, you know, it felt, it felt right for me to, to pull that together. And one of the principles, it's a very simple principle um, that, that I've laid out for the, for the company, uh, for the league, uh, the NFL, is that if we're doing something and you can't explain it to your mother, or if after explaining it to your mother, she feels creepy about it, don't do it. Don't do it. <laughs> right? That should be the bar that we all have. Right? And so I have a long-term, maybe not even long-term, it's probably a medium-term prediction, which says in the next three, five, long end seven years, third-party cookies will cease to exist because third-party cookies do not pass my mother's test. A, I cannot explain it to her. You can explain third-party cookies to, to an 85-year-old uh, Asian woman who grew up in Japan? I don't think so. She's never going to understand that. And by the way, if you were lucky enough and she understood it, that feels creepy. That feels creepy. Very different, right, from uh, the, uh, the NFL where all of our relationships with our fans, as you were saying, uh, is a direct one-to-one -one relationship. All right, so let me give you an example. Uh, if, if you offer up, uh, and most of our fans do, if you offer up to give us uh, knowledge about who your favorite team is, what do we do in return? Because this goes to your question of what are we doing with the data? Well, then we're gonna give you more relevant offerings and services. Right, we will, we will uh, find merchandise that's relevant from a favorite team perspective. We will find offers for tickets uh, to, uh, to games where your favorite team is playing. We will change the content of the website or the mobile app to be more driven towards your favorite team. Um, what fan is not gonna want that? And what fan doesn't understand that? Well, yeah, of course, I'm gonna give the NFL my my favorite team information, you know, I want stuff that's relevant to me, right? And, and to me, that's the value of having a one-to-one -one relationship. Um, what I like about the my mom principle and always adhering to that is, you know, look, there are always debates uh, that we have uh, both inside and outside the company around what we're comfortable doing and what we're not comfortable doing. But it goes to your question on regulators. I like the idea of self-regulation, and that's one of the fundamental principles for why Sam Palmasano and Ken Chenault pulled the data consortium together, because they want this group uh, of highly advanced data-driven companies to set the playbooks, to set the best practices out there, so regulators like the California Attorney General's office don't feel like they have to regulate anybody. Or if they do, you know what? I'll just write the regulations according to what this data consortium group of companies is doing today. What we don't want are non-data professionals at the California Attorney General's office, not to pick on them, to write regulations that are actually very difficult and very costly and potentially nonsensical to implement. Let me give you an example. The California law, which is called CCPA, uh, the California Consumer Privacy Act, 
in my mind, my humble opinion, was written uh, by non-data professionals because if unless you're really, really good at this stuff, it was nearly impossible to implement a system that would do what was required by this California law. Uh, and so some companies, uh, some of our partner companies spent upwards of $10 million to implement a system just for California, just for California, $10 million, okay? Uh, we did not, we spent in the hundreds of thousands of dollars. There are tricks to, to, to doing this, but um, unless you're really good, you're spending, uh, in fact, the California Attorney General Office uh, said on average companies of the size of the NFL were spending upwards of $2 million. There's no reason a company should have to spend $2 million to adhere to a poorly written regulation, right? I mean, that's, that's the, if it costs $2 million, because that's a lot of money. And that's way more than we're spending on the AWS cloud uh, rental, by the way. <laughs> you know, we're spending in the hundreds of thousands. So now we're going to spend $2 million on something that just to adhere to a, a California law? You know, that doesn't really make a lot of sense. It means a non-data professional wrote it. So what we would argue in the data consortium is do it right and do it in a way that even if California decided to write the regulations, they write it in a way that it's not costing $2 million to implement. Right, it's costing a few hundred thousand dollars. It's relatively easy, and again, going back to my mom's rule, my mom understands it and would not feel creeped out by the by the uh, data practices. Um, so that's how I think about it. And it's not just data privacy; it's ethical use of artificial intelligence. Right? It's you know, there's a whole gamut of practices. Uh, it's you know, it there's a whole set of new computer vision. Right, Arjun, you're, you're in the computer. What is the ethical use of computer vision? Do we want to wait for a regular, again, a non-data professional uh, in, uh, in, in a governmental office to write the regulations? Or do we simply want to do it correctly, right? And either not have uh, uh, regulations come into place or come, you know, they come into place, but they make sense and they're implementable uh, and they're not onerous. Does that make sense? No, absolutely. Absolutely. That makes sense. It's a, it's, a, it's a difficult issue, but I think the NFL seems to be navigating it in a way. I really like that, that sort of mother, explain it to your mother and, and, and see whether it, it does it sound creepy or not. <laughs> uh, how bad is it that, that it took me like three seconds to realize you guys are talking about like, like not like chocolate chip cookies, like third party cookies. <laughs> I was like, what? What's the, <laughs> that's the reason for the mother text, right? Like, <laughs> the third party vendors selling cookies at, at NFL games. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> it, it, it does speak Very to the danger of, of sort of using jargon to sort of cover up what, what you're actually doing though, right? I think that's, that, that's, and that's why this whole mother is, is, is super, super useful. Um, it, 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 it's, it's a good bar. It makes it real uh, for, uh, I, I think as uh, the, the one uh, counsel I would have to anybody entering the field of uh, data science is communications is really, really important. Uh, data scientists are, are typically not strong communicators, but those that have the best um, experiences, those that have the most fruitful careers can speak to their mothers about what they do. My mother knows exactly what I do, by the way, right? And that tells you a lot uh, that we can, we can take what is a reasonably complex science, it's a very complex science, data science, uh, but bring it down uh, 
to a decision maker level. Again, 20 years from now, I don't think that's going to be necessary because I believe uh, most C-level executives uh, will be well-versed in the jargon. Uh, they will be, but today they're not. <laughs> and next year they won't be, and in five years they still won't be. But 20 years from now, I think they will all. Uh, Arjun, does your mom know what you're doing with your computer vision research or whatever the thing you I got? Think approximately, <laughs> approximately. I've, I've, you know, <laughs> I've run my best to explain it. <laughs> it's good practice for sure to, to you know, good practice for my communication skills. <laughs> um, if we can sort of shift tack completely to the to the idea of working from home, um, you know, this, this has sure. become a pretty, pretty uh, uh, major and, and, and kind of relevant issue in, in the wake of the COVID crisis. And uh, companies like Google and Facebook are yeah. allowing employees to work remotely from home until the end of the year. Um, and some companies, uh, Twitter, for example, are allowing their employees to work from home indefinitely. Um, I know uh, my dad personally, he works in tech and uh, he is uh -huh. basically working from home until September. And then he has the option to only have to come in one day a week and then work from home uh, the rest of the day. So, so kind of things seem to be changing in, in fundamental long-term ways. Um, and so for, for White Collar America, uh, all these trends uh, sort of put into question the return of the traditional office and cubicle setting in, in this new post-COVID world. Uh, and so how do you feel about this so-called work from home revolution um, and do you think there'll be a day where, for example, we'll look at shows like The Office with the, with a certain nostalgia? Um, uh, so do you think that we're going to see uh, this shift towards, towards work from home in a fundamental way? What do you think are some potential negative consequences, some potential positive consequences? And, and how would you maybe approach this question from a data-driven approach, right? How can you use data to try to assess whether work from home is, is effective? That, that's a that's a great uh, it, it's a great theme. Uh, I, I I do know um, the Twitter and and uh, Facebook uh, folks very well. Uh, in fact, I know the the chief uh, human resources of, uh, officer at at Twitter. We we worked at American Express together uh, many years ago. Um, he, here's what I would say. Uh, I I think it it depends a lot on the business. So when I think about my role, my data and analytics role at American Express, when I think about uh, many different roles at Twitter, at Facebook, at Google, you know, these companies that have all uh, announced the end of year and maybe even uh, beyond in the case of Twitter uh, in, in a re uh, remote working environment, um, their work products and their work cycles is, is a better word, uh, are far more predictable. So I remember when I worked at American Express, I generally did uh, the same thing every day, right? There was not a off season, a regular season, a post season, right? There weren't the draft, the combine, you know, every, uh, every event, every major event for the NFL and our colleague sports leagues uh, are very different. So I think if you work for a bank, you work for a consulting firm, you work for a Google, a Facebook, a Twitter, uh, I, I think in the short term, working from home uh, seems like a, you know, a very, very viable proposition. Uh, I'm very thankful for my team. We are 100% remote uh, working from home right now for the 94 days, which feels like 94 years, uh, but it is 94 days uh, that we've been working from home. We feel fortunate because we have tools like this uh, Zoom technology. When 9-11 hit, 
the American Express building was right next to the World Trade Center. So we were in a remote working environment for a year, almost a year. Zoom did not exist. Smartphones did not exist. You could not FaceTime anybody. There was no video contact at all. And in fact, the, the, the cell phones were feature phones with you know, you know, extremely crummy sound quality, et cetera. Uh, it was hard to work from home uh, at that point in time. The productivity levels uh, were very challenged as a practical matter. Uh, and it was just hours and hours and hours of just aggravating time on the phone. It really was. Uh, and, and feelings of real self-isolation because being on the phone is not the same as being on a Zoom, a WebEx, uh, uh, Microsoft Teams, you know, whatever software you use, Google Meet, they're all great. Um, but here's what I would say. Even if you have a, so for the NFL, I don't think it's a long-term solution. For a sports league, I don't think it's a long-term solution. For the NFL, uh, just so that you know, uh, I'm bringing my team back into the office in the next uh, few weeks. Okay, so it's, it's, it's over for us. Uh, this is a cool experiment. I'm glad it's over. <laughs> I won't, I won't do it anymore. The fun is over. <laughs> it's, extremely, it's extremely difficult to do. Uh, and so we don't want to. But, you know, for Facebook, Twitter, I, I get it. But here's what I would say, particularly for those folks who are early in their career. Even if you're at a Facebook, a Twitter, a Google, a consulting firm, um, I don't think from a long-term career perspective, if you have high ambitions to advance your career and uh, take on incremental responsibilities and incremental roles, I don't think remote working is a good idea. So I used to manage, the parallel to this is I used to manage global, uh, for most of my career at American Express, I managed global teams. Uh, in my last job at American Express, I had teams in Australia, in India, uh, in London, Mexico, Canada, you know, every geography you could think of. And every uh, person, uh, because every person's career is a function of their own ambition, right? We don't impose as leaders ambition on, onto people uh, on our teams. So if a uh, team member says, look, I'm ambitious and I'd like to take on new roles and, uh, you know, someday have your job, EWOW, uh, that's great. That's the, the, the lovely, loveliest thing I can hear is uh, somebody wanting to have my job. It's, it's, it's awesome. Uh, but the one piece I tell them is, uh, if they were working in the Canada office, the Australia office, the India office, you must do a two-year rotation in the New York or London headquarters. If you don't, you will not make it. You will not make it because you, you are out of sight and out of mind. Uh, that may be different in Twitter and Facebook. Look, I've never worked at those companies, so I don't know. Uh, but at American Express, <laughs> Uh, you know, and that was the moral equivalent because we didn't really do the remote working that much. Um, and today, you know, I would say for those who want that upwardly mobile, uh, increasing roles and responsibility career path, you got to think about a balance where you're not in a 100% remote environment. Uh, and then for those in the sports world and other, uh, you know, I, I don't think uh, every industry is going to work in in um, in the way that Twitter was saying, uh, where they have a long term, or Facebook I think was also saying where they have a long term model. And uh, Argentina, you know, to use your words, that office, the TV show Office, will just be a distant memory. I, I don't think so. I don't think so. Uh, look, will it look different? It may look a little different, but.
actually it's not going to be a distant memory. <laughs> no, that's a that's a wonderful point. And also, just because something is more efficient doesn't mean it is more ideal, or that's something people want to do. I mean, I wouldn't imagine if I have built my entire career just being a remote software engineer.、Uh, even though if I get paid a lot, <laughs> I don't think that would be very、uh, enjoyable. But I, I,、yeah. I do want to ask you one more question about long-term trends, since we were talking about long-term trends about working from home. Why don't we、yeah. talk about the long-term trends of sports industry? Because I think. Uh, there is a important、sure. conversation there to be had, and I,、uh, I would love to push back on you a little bit because you were、uh, quite optimistic about NFL's plan to come back, and NFL, as you said, the official plans come back in the fall. But、uh, we have seen in the past couple of months some uh, uh, implementations and experiments that didn't work as well. For example,、uh, Germany's、uh, soccer league Bundesliga restarted their game.、Uh, they would test their player twice a week.、Uh, they have this kind of little. Bubble league type of thing. All the players live together,、uh, and、uh, actually, they still led to multiple multiple teams shutting down because it detected the virus.、Uh, same thing happened with the UFC.、Uh, the UFC didn't really have that strict rules in the first place,、uh, and then they didn't even abide by that well. And one of the players came in contact with someone.、Mm-hmm. The testing didn't come in until later, and that was very unfortunate. And MLB spent a lot of time、uh, thinking about this current plan that they got going on because. Baseball right now should be the prime season, and、uh, baseball should be something that has the least kind of contact between people. So, a lot of people had a lot of hope on MLB, and、uh, epidemiologists are saying、yeah. we don't like your plan. Your plan is not sufficient. You have to do better.、Uh, maybe you need daily testing.、Mm-hmm. Maybe you need a, a bubble league. Whatever it may be.、Uh, so, it, it does seem not that、um, hopeful.、Uh, so, so don't you think it's a little bit too o- overly optimistic that we think? Life will just go back to normal in the fall. That people would just want to come out and, and watch sports. I mean, I get that sports is an integral part of our culture that we shouldn't abandon,、uh, like work from home. But, but, but it doesn't seem a little bit rushed, right? Well, you know, again, I I think we have、uh, it, it. Look, it's by pure luck that we have the advantage of time. And、uh, look, I I think you're right. I I think there will be implementations. Uh, both in terms of the games、uh, themselves,、uh, you know, you pointed to、uh, a couple of very, very good examples、um, where you know you learn from it, right? The best leaders are not looking necessarily for perfection.、Uh, you know, there is a way to be perfect, which is don't do, don't do anything, right? And look, I've had I've had this conversation with folks on my team about going back、uh, to the office next week. I get it.、Uh, there are folks who would rather not. When I brought、uh, 200 people back、uh, into the World Financial Center after 9/11,、uh, as strange as this may seem,、uh, back then high floors were a big fear factor for people, right? And I was on the 46th floor. My entire team was on the 46th floor. And so when I brought people back,、uh, you know, there was a a visible nervousness around people. I I, I get it. But the alternative is just to shut down and and you know live live in the corner of your bedroom for the next fifty years. I, like I guess that's an alternative, but it seems nonsensical to me.、Uh, and look, you know, I need to be sensitive about it with、uh, with my team. I don't want to necessarily force、uh, anyone, you know, quite frankly, to go back、uh, to to the office. But、uh, let me give you a real example.、Uh, my wife,、uh, you know, she'll be turning sixty-two. Um, she has、uh, type two diabetes and she has autoimmune disease. She is at seriously high risk of COVID nineteen. If she got COVID nineteen, 
I got a serious problem on my hand, right? So I could take the point of view that says, I'm not productive, you know, working from home and, you know, but I don't want to put her at risk and I'm, I'm just going to stay at home for the next, uh, you know, until I retire from the NFL. Um, that seems just not uh, the right thing to do as a leader. Uh, and I told my team this very directly. I said, I have the highest risk factor of all of you. Okay. So I will be scrutinizing the return to work protocols. Are they taking my temperature or not as they go into the office? Right. Is there social distancing? Are there one way hallways? Uh, are, are we not allowed to use printers? You know, all of the mundane uh, things which will make a difference. Um, those are the types of things as an employee I will be looking for. And if I don't feel 100% comfortable, I'm not bringing my team back. I said, I'm going in first, okay? And, uh, and then I'll bring my team back. It's the same thing I did, you know, after 9-11. Um, that's why I'm optimistic because it's not, uh, to your point, we don't know what we don't know, right? We don't know how this will work, but really good leaders will figure it out. Will there be tripwires along the way? Of course, of course. But if you don't hit those tripwires, then that means you've not done anything. And if we've not done anything, we did not help raise the nation's spirit. Okay, and last time I checked, it seems like everybody wants us to raise the nation's spirit, number one. And number two, again, going back to the beginning of our podcast, we know from our survey work, both our internal fan tracker, and the syndicated research, fans want to go back. They want to go back. 8% will go back tomorrow. 21% will go back in 30 days. And then uh, by the time our season, you know, it'll, it'll be 50, 60, 70, who knows, right? It'll be a very, very high percentage. Um, but again, to your point, a lot of that will be, do we, and we, I mean, collectively, all of the leagues, are we smart about this? Do we learn, you know, if there are tripwires that we hit, by the way, not only on, on just the game implementation, but also how, uh, you know, I pointed to the, uh, the NASCAR implementation where, you know, they featured all of the social distancing of the broadcasters that went over very, very, we measured it, uh, that went over very, very well. Um, that particular race uh, was one of, outside of the Daytona 500, was the most viewed race that NASCAR has had since 2017, right? It tells you that that was the, and we have the minute by minute and the minute by minute was rising during, uh, you know, the very self-promoting, it was self-promoting in the right way, uh, implementation of social distancing of the broadcasters, of the uh, mechanics in pit row. Even when the drivers were standing next to their cars, clearly more than six feet away from the next driver, they were wearing masks. Right. Those are the things that make uh, for what we believe to be a very positive fan experience. And we're going to learn more. Again, it, to me, it's all about the data. It goes back to what you guys had premised this podcast on, which is we have learned a lot in this pandemic uh, about the power of data and that real time feedback loop uh, as we prepare uh, for our regular season and as we see our colleague leagues stand up their seasons. Right. It's not like I, we measured NASCAR for because we were curious about we're looking to learn, you know, what are the things that worked? It turns out it was, a, you know, quite a flawless execution. They did. Uh, they did a wonderful job. Uh, but, you know, to your point, there'll be hiccups. You know, I'm, I'm sure there'll be things that don't work. That's fine. 
No one's expecting perfection. By the way, was the draft, you know, was every moment uh, working on the, you know, did someone's uh, Wi-Fi kind of glitch out during the, yes, it did. Did anybody care? Not really. It, it actually added a, an element of realism to, we're in the midst of a pandemic. These guys are, these guys are trying to raise the nation's spirits by continuing to continue on. And by the way, the nation was counting on us to do that. You know, can you imagine the disappointment of 70.1 million people if we didn't do it? Yeah, you know what? The <laughs> pandemic, we're, we're not going to do it. Sorry. <laughs> you can't do that. You got to just go and do it. Uh, and, you know, like I said, I, I think from uh, a data feedback loop, uh, we will learn a lot uh, during this off season. Uh, and of course, we will learn during the, uh, during the, uh, the regular season and the postseason. Uh, so I, for one, am looking forward to it. I, you know, as a data professional, I think it will, um, it will cause us to measure things that we hadn't measured before. And back uh, uh, to your, uh, both of your earlier points, those then become institutionalized as processes we keep post the pandemic, which is exciting. Well, I am really moved by your answer, and also the, 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 this is, you are an admirable leader, Mr. Fusillo. You have skinned the game, you lead the charge. I mean, this is just uh, all the examples and qualities that we really talked about today. I mean, uh, it's, it's truly great what you guys are doing, and, and people constantly bring up the example of the, you know, the first sports game, or the first baseball game right after 9-11, and how much that signifies in terms of lifting oh, the nation's It really did. Uh, and, and I think this is this is great that we're figuring out solutions. So I suppose at the very end, we will just ask you, what would be your punchline here for this show? I mean, last time we asked you the punchline, this time uh, we probably expect a different punchline in a pandemic. Sure. Yeah, yeah. Well, look, uh, my, my punchline would be much more about looking forward. Uh, it's a lot about the themes that you premise this podcast on. When I look uh, to the next 20 years, Right, because you always look forward by looking backwards. Right, you learn from the things that that happened. If I look at the uh, the prior twenty years, and I look at the evolution of the chief financial officer, and how the CFO has now become the go-to executive uh, for CEO positions, the go-to executive for public board positions, I believe the same thing will happen for chief data officers over the course of the next. 20 years. I think if you, and, and I'm very excited, you know, I won't be working in 20 years, not to reveal <laughs> my age, but uh, I'm in my last quartile here. So I'm, I'm super happy with my career. This is great. Uh, but I there is an ounce of wanting to be uh, still in corporate, uh, uh, corporate life 20 years from now, because I believe 20 years from now, uh, Fortune a significant portion of Fortune 500 companies uh, and their CEOs will be ex-chief data officers. Um, there will be uh, professionals with uh, data science backgrounds. Um, and, and that is, you know, in many ways what I learned with my daughter <laughs> coming to Princeton for a day uh, and Professor Tatunik, that, you know, here is a professor saying she doesn't want any person to graduate from Princeton without a deep knowledge of R without a deep knowledge of data science, because the world will become very, very data-driven uh, over, the, over the next couple of decades. Uh, so I look forward to that. I look forward to being a part of it. And then, you know, you guys, uh, I'll certainly be following you guys over the course of uh, your careers 
And I'm sure because you're both very data driven, clearly. You know, RJ, more specifically, I, I'm a little bit hopeless. <laughs> I'm much more hopeless in that technical regard. Yeah. He's selling himself short. He's definitely selling himself short. <laughs> Well, well, that's a wonderful punchline to, to end on. And, and you made several really important predictions, uh, you know, both in terms of uh, chief data officers leading a bigger role in the future and also in terms of regulation and how sports industries shape up. So, well, it, it's always a pleasure, Mr. Fusillo. Thanks so much for so graciously offering to come back to the show again and offering us your wonderful insights. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Thank you. Well, thanks so much for having me. Uh, be well, stay safe, and I look forward to the next podcast. Of, of course. And, and Arjun, thanks so much for helping me out as well. Yeah, always, always great banters, you know, on the show. Oh, as always, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so it's always a great time. It's the most fun ever. So anyways, thanks so much for listening today. That was our interview with uh, NFL's um, C Senior Vice President of Data Analytics and Insights, Mr. Ewell Fusillo. We talked about how data-driven decisions uh, should be made in terms of crises and beyond, and also some of the tools that NFL are using uh, to monitor their fan sentiment right now and also a pass back to a normalcy. Those are very important questions to be had. And we certainly, uh, the whole nation is looking forward uh, to looking up to uh, NFL and other sports leagues to lifting our spirits up. So uh, that was our interview and hope you enjoyed it. Please follow us on policypunchline.com and uh, follow us and rate and review us on iTunes, Spotify, and other platforms that you may follow your podcast on. Uh, thanks so much for listening and watching today. Appreciate it. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.